Hey folks, Gerald Kirk here, and I'm excited to share that this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast is supported in part by the Alabama Humanities Alliance, a state affiliate of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of Alabama Humanities Alliance or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, let's get to the show. And we are back uh, for season three of the Higher Ground Society podcast. We took a bit of a break last year to get uh, our Patchwork Symphony, focused on our Patchwork Symphony project, which we'll talk about that more later. But um, we finally got back on track for our podcast to have some incredible conversations with Alabama creatives and thinkers, um, and thanks in large part to the Alabama Humanities Alliance, who is helping us make this uh, these conversations possible. So uh, for our first guest on the show, um, we'll actually be observing here at the tail end of National Poetry Month. And to, to observe that with us, we have the Dr. Jacqueline Allen Trimble. <laughs> How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time out to sit with me for a little chat about your work. Um, and so, oh, thank you. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for those who don't know, they should, but for those who don't know, <laughs> uh, please, uh, you know, tell us who, who you are and what you do. So my name is Jacqueline Allen Trimble, and I'm a professor of um, American literature. I chair the Department of Languages and Literatures at Alabama State University, at the Alabama State University. <laughs> and um, I was a longtime faculty member and in, in chairperson at Huntington College. And um, so I started my life as a poet mm -hmm. and then became an academic. And then I returned to poetry. And so recently I have um, written and published, had published two collections of my poems. The first in 2016, American Happiness, uh, which won the Balcones Poetry Prize. And most recently in, um, in August of last year, How to Survive the Apocalypse, mm -hmm. which was listed as one of the New York Public Library's top 10 Book, poetry books of 2022 so um i'm a poet <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's and i cannot wait to talk about um i, I did not uh do we did not review uh, american happiness but we did dive into how to survive the apocalypse so we're going to talk Perfect. about some of your work from there and it, it's it's yes. it was so y'all it was so difficult to narrow down which pieces <laughs> i want to talk about because everything she She's spitting in, <laughs> in this book. Well, it is I appreciate so that. good. No, it is so, so, so good. Um, and and I'm, just to let people know, we briefly met about a year and a half ago. Of time is, I've yeah. lost all track of it, but we met at yes. 
the um, installation or the inauguration of uh, Alabama's poet laureate, Ashley M. Jones. We met Correct. there and that's where we made our connection. And that was the first time that I met you and I just loved your spirit and you were so nice and so kind and, and open to the idea of, of coming Aww. to the show. So um, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk. Um, Me too. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So um, a few more questions though. So you said you taught at Huntingdon. Um, what's yes. your, your training though? So like, do you go to school for literature or for creative yes. writing? Or Yes, yes. So um, I actually, my undergraduate degree is from Huntington. I was an English major. I majored in English, um, okay. minored in theater and business because my mother said, you're going to starve. So you've got <laughs> to have some business in there. So I really was interested in computer programming, if you can imagine. Sure. Um, and almost took a job. Uh, right out of college as a computer programmer, oh, but wow. said no and decided to go to graduate school. And so I also have a master's degree in English from um, University of Alabama, as well as a PhD in English. Okay. And my first teaching job um, or my first job was at Alabama State University in a writing center. Okay. And when I decided to go back to graduate school, my dean said, because um, I wanted to get an MFA and it, and it had been accepted into the MFA program. I had taken some um, MFA classes. I sort of started my uh, career in writing at the University of Missouri, working with the wonderful poet Garrett Hongo. Mm -hmm. And then my mother died in the middle of that. So I sort mm -hmm. of came home and regrouped. But my dean said when I decided to go back to graduate school, she said, well, if you're going to stay here, you really need to go the PhD route as opposed to the MFA route. So I decided to go the PhD route. And so for about three decades, I didn't write. Um, I didn't mm. write poetry. At least. I wrote everything but po poetry. Mm. And um, so my husband said I was a um, by that time, I had um, been through Huntingdon. I'd left Huntingdon, gone back to Alabama State. I was a tenured full professor, um, two different institutions. And he said, you're not happy. And I said, what do you mean? I'm happy. He said, nope, you're not writing. You've got to start writing again. Mm -hmm. And so um, I started writing again and started going to workshops around the country and started writing poetry again, and it set me on this trajectory. So here I am. So that's my background in a nutshell. That's, that's I've incredible. I've spent the last 37 years teaching college students. <laughs> that's, that is really and, incredible. Uh, like, yeah, and now I'm back to writing poetry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm so glad. First of all, kudos to... A, a good husband, you yes, know, a great husband. Yes. <laughs> you know yes. noticing that about you and uh and, and kind of pushing you toward that's what partnership is supposed to be about right like pushing us this, toward that this is what partnership is about that's yeah. right making us our best selves helping us to be our best selves absolutely so it's yeah. incredible that you said you didn't write for 37 years though yeah 30 years yeah it was 30 years 30 of years. not writing yeah, 30 years of not writing, really. Um, every now and then during faculty meeting, I would, you know, scribble a poem. But sure. I just, that was not the thing I was doing. I was doing so many other things. And um, yeah, um, the first workshop I went to was a workshop a colleague recommended um, for me. It was Marge Piercy, who's an amazing American um, poet. 
mm-hmm. and she did these intensive workshops in Cape Cod. So mm-hmm. um, I had a we had a 12 year old son at this time. Um, my husband, my son and I packed up and we drove to Cape Cod and spent wow. a, a week in Cape Cod at this writing intensive. And we loved it. I loved it. It was just like, you know, it was like something in me that had been dead what had been awakened. Sure. And I couldn't, I could not stop writing. And um, I applied to Cave Conum. I don't know if listeners know what Cave Conum is, but it is this, it's called The Place for Black Poetry. It was founded by Cornelius Eady and Toy Derricote. And they wanted to um, make an effort to basically support um, poets of uh, African descent. Mm-hmm. And um, in all those various forms, you know, mm-hmm. you could be a Caribbean poet, an African poet, African American poet, or whatever, Dominican mm-hmm. poet. And um, because what they found was that Black poets were not winning the prizes, mm-hmm. they were not getting the editorships, they were not, you know, um, being teaching the workshops. And um, so they wanted to change that. And and in 25 years, they changed it with a vengeance by just providing a space and a place for Black poets. And so when you start looking at the people who came through Cave Conum, you have people like, um, you know, uh, Terrence Hayes or... um, uh, Jericho Brown mm-hmm. and you know Nate Marshall and Natasha Trethaway won the first Cave Conum Prize and it mm-hmm. just goes on and on and it becomes this kind of list of uh, the black poet who's who in America and it really did change the face of black editorship etc cetera, etc cetera. and so I applied to Cave Conum I really didn't know what it was when I applied mm-hmm. and they uh, took me and uh, I'm glad I didn't know what it was because I never yeah. would have applied. You know, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not ready for this. And um, I remember getting there and looking around and thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I got myself into? And I told Tori Derricote, I said, you've made a horrible mistake. I don't know how I got in this. And she said, no, we haven't. And it was like on. And the people I met, um, I met a woman who was in, I was in workshop with, and I had done a poem for workshop. Uh, in Cave Conum, you write a poem a day. Mm-hmm. And, and the mantra is 10 at 10 in the bin, and, and you pass them out to your classmates. And one of my classmates said, I want to publish your poem. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was, wi- it was wild. And so, so many things like that sort of began happening to me. Um, and I did a 20, I participated in this thing called 24 hours of poetry where you sign up to read at some weird hour of the Mm -hmm. night or day. And I read, I took my little sheath of poems and I read them and the publisher who had sponsored it walked up to me and said, I want to publish your collection, which never, this never happens. And, um, he, and I said, I don't have a collection. He said, well, we're going to give you a contract and you're going to write one. Nice. And that. That became American happiness. So that was my that was my journey. And so now here I am, you know, here I am trying to write poems all the time. That's and every we're, day. We're so we're, we're better off for it. Again, so you came out of this this 30 year 
hiatus. <laughs> you came out swinging. <laughs> um, like you said, with a vengeance. That, that's incredible. So and so the, the folks there at ASU are definitely um, fortunate to have you, for sure. Because oh. uh, truly, um, it, we'll, again, we'll get into the writing in a, a bit. Okay. But I'm still, I'm still trying to dig, like, uh, like, your background story. So where are you from originally? Are you from... So I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, by okay. the way of Tus Tuskegee, Alabama. Okay. Um, um, sort of spent, um, my father had a farm there, and okay. um, um, we moved to Montgomery when I was about five because oh. my mother had passed away, and he remarried again. He remarried. And so we moved to Montgomery, and um, then a couple of years later, he passed away. Oh, wow. So it was just me and my stepmom who raised me. Mm. And I sort of owe my my love of all things literature to her okay. because the house was full of books and I spent my entire childhood reading mm. and uh, just fell in love with poetry very, very early in my life, you know. Right. Um, and so I think that was, um, you know, I remember being in elementary school and people would bring little poems to recite. We had to recite things in class then. And I would always recite T.S. Eliot, you know, because oh. I loved T.S. Eliot. <laughs> I had no idea what the poems meant and it didn't matter, but I loved the sounds they made. So um, I think that just sort of created for me my poetic ear. Mm -hmm. Those people that I was reading and, and memorizing and, and just reciting um, uh, sort of made me a poet. <laughs> Absolutely. That definitely did not see that one coming. T.S. Eliot, you know, he's a... I know, T.S. Eliot. Oh, yeah. He's kind of a, an acquired taste. For, <laughs> so. Well, he, he, he says he writes to the audience of one, but if you listen to his poetry, you know, like, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. And you go, oh, my God. Uh, like, sure. <laughs> writes a line like that. It's so it's so amazing and beautiful. And even when, you know, he begins things like, that are unfathomable like the wasteland. He says, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire. You go, oh my God. Yeah, it's a so, lot. <laughs> it's a lot, but it's so it's so beautiful. You know, it's mm -hmm. so sonorous. It's so mm -hmm. lovely. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I read a lot of Poe. I read a lot of Langston Hughes, who is a a musical poet. And so these poets are so musical and so beautiful. And, and um, so I fell in love with the sound of poetry before I ever even thought about what it meant. That's incredible. I love that. And I've never even heard of that. And maybe that's what my experience is too. Just the yes. sound of it. That, that maybe that's what it is. So I often, I'll read something and I'm like, I don't know what this means, but it sounded yeah. good. So it doesn't thank matter you for allowing us and giving us something else yes. to connect to with poetry. <laughs> See, you're, you're, you're a teacher. Look at that already. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. So, yeah, speaking of teaching, um, I'm curious yeah. to know what you find rewarding about teaching. So, again, you, you, you devoted a lot of your life to getting to that point to where yeah. you did teach. So, um, yeah. What do you find rewarding about that? And specifically, since you're at an HBCU, you've had experience yes. at Huntington and HBCU. Yes. So tell me yes. specifically why is it so, if it is special to be teaching at an HBCU? 
Absolutely. I mean, I was very intentional. Um, when I was at Huntingdon, I was a tenured full professor. I mm-hmm. could have spent the rest of my career there. Mm-hmm. It would have been great. And I love teaching at Huntingdon. I taught mm-hmm. American literature and uh, critical theory and all sorts of other things. And I'm still in contact with students that I taught at Huntingdon. Great. Um, they are still um, they are still my forever students, even mm-hmm. some of them even though some of them have, you know, have children and all, all sorts of things. But um, so I love teaching. The thing I love about teaching is learning. Okay. And I think because I fell in love with learning so early in my life, you know, I'm the person who goes to the museum and reads all the little placards because I, I just, I, I want to know, I want to know things. <laughs> And, you know, my theory is that people who love to teach are people who just love to learn stuff. Sure. And you have an excuse to remain in school the rest of your life. That's true. Yeah. And and so I love it. Um, For me, it's about leading people on a road to their own discovery, mm-hmm. because I know when I get up and I don't I'm, I don't like to lecture. You know, I give people a foundation and then we we read things and have discussions. Mm -hmm. I want to know what you think about it, because truthfully, it's not really important what I think about it. I can provide you some context for it, but you really need to begin to form your own aesthetic, your own opinion. And so leading people toward discovery. Mm -hmm. My favorite thing was to teach. Um. Um, these big sections of American literature and have people come back to me years later and say, you know, I taught, I took your American lit class and I never stopped reading. Oh. You taught us about this. And then, you know, um, then I went and I read all of so-and-so's work and I read all of, to me, that's my job as a teacher is, is not to give you this little finite, you know, bit of knowledge, but to show you how luscious learning is and how mm-hmm. luscious knowledge is and to lead you toward these people that I hope you will fall in love with and you will continue to discover on your own. And so um, I left Huntington. I got the opportunity. Um, Alabama State was hiring a chairperson. And so I got the opportunity to apply for that job. I always wanted to teach at an HBCU. I okay. began my life, my teaching life at, at um, Alabama State because um, I always I felt that uh, a lot of times uh, African-American scholars um, abandon HBCUs because often PWIs can offer more money, more mm-hmm. prestige, kind of an easier road to hoe. But... Um, for me, it's um, so amazing, so wonderful to stand in front of a room of brown faces, mm-hmm. and not all of them are brown, and to walk the halls surrounded by these students and then to help them to discover this journey, this mm-hmm. journey of learning. And um, I love that. I think it's um, um, I think it's a... I, I hate to say it like this. I don't want to sound like Booker T. Washington. I think it's a cultural responsibility. Sure. Each one, teach one. But I also think that it's it's such a joy um, because um, um, much of our educational system is focused on a very kind of Western way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And a lot of African-American students have not 
had the opportunity or been in spaces where they have been exposed to other learning, to other parts of history, mm-hmm. to the absolute brilliance of African-American people sure. and originality. So they know, you know, that all they know is they know slavery and the civil rights movement, right. and they know nothing else about African-American people. And when you start talking about, um, you know, the cradle of civilization, when you start talking about the invention of things like libraries mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they look at you like, what? <laughs> and there's so much misinformation. I, I teach a course called Race and, and you just fill in the blanks. So race and economics, okay. race and, ra- yeah, race and literature, race and history, race and medicine. And so every week we take up a different topic. And so one of the things I remember um, I was talking about um, race and economics. And one of the things we talk about is poverty And um, one of the questions I ask is, um, who is the biggest group of poor people in America? And invariably students say, these are African-American students, Black people. And I said, that's statistically impossible. Mm. It's just not even possible. Mm -hmm. We are 12, 13% of the population. There are this many poor people. How is that possible? And then they started thinking, what? And I said, okay, so go look it up. Go look it up. And they come back and their faces are like, what? <laughs> every every week poster and every a welfare poster has a black woman on it. And, a, and I said, right. Mm-hmm. So let's think about why that might be. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to put certain faces on certain causes and issues? Mm-hmm. Who does that benefit and how does that benefit people? And when we start delving into what's true, what's actual, what can be documented and looking at things like reports and, Mm -hmm. you know, government documents and statistics and et cetera, et cetera. People's mouths start hanging open and they said, I cannot believe I have believed this narrative of deficiency. (laughs) And so I think the, the main reason I teach at a HBCU is because my job for African-American students in particular, and for all students really, is to debunk the narrative of black deficiency. Sure. We are not a deficient people. Mm-hmm. We are an extraordinary people who Absolutely. have done extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and the argument of my my latest book is that African Americans have survived many apocalypses. Absolutely. And we have done it through our creativity. Yeah. And our genius. Yeah. And I think we need to. I think particularly African-Americans, I think everybody needs to know that, but I think particularly African-American students need to know that, that do, you know, that you come from a magnificent people, mm-hmm. not a people of deficiency. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay. So I feel like I need to, <laughs> I, I'll talk about auditing one of your classes and I definitely <laughs> like, there's so many points that you just you brought up there. I would definitely want to come back to that race and course. I think it's going to tie into yes. to something. Um, but what you just, where you just left off is a great segue into the first piece that I wanted to um, chat about. And so again, okay. you folks, the name of her, her uh, latest book again is how to survive the apocalypse. Well, before we actually read that um, the cover in and of the cover art, 
Yeah. Incredible. So beautiful. Can you tell us more about that really quickly? Sure. Okay. Carol Bandy Carson is the artist of that beautiful um, Victorian woman. And because mm-hmm. there's a woman in the book, a black Victorian woman that I write about um, when I, I was actually interviewing her for a, um, uh, uh, the museum of Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts. She had okay. been part of an exhibition on um, who called Who I Am. And she had painted this beautiful painting and I saw it and I thought, oh my God, that's, yes, I, I want to buy that painting. Yeah. And so my husband actually bought it for me for my birthday. And um, it represented um, this black Victorian woman. And I write about a black Victorian woman. So she was gracious enough to give me permission to use it on my cover. Brilliant. That is, it's, it's just very striking. So again, you can look that up and then buy it. And then you can look at this yes. Victorian woman yes. <laughs> as yes. well. So thank you for the, the story behind that. Uh, so yes. now tell us, so first of all, go ahead and just, uh, if you don't mind, uh, offer sure. unto us uh, this, <laughs> This poem, World Economics. Okay, all right. World Economics. A man stands in the Kenyan desert. He is not Kenyan, but a refugee. Both guest and stranger, he claims no country, and no country claims him. Not even the one which stole him from his mother's care to make him a soldier. He gazes toward the place he once killed a man and the place his wife and children live without him. Behind him, the world is made of thorns. His belly is full of hunger. He has traded a day of food for phone minutes. Each time he talks to his wife is a morsel of bread. His child's first steps were a bowl of rice. He wears a lavender t-shirt Disney World, it says. Mickey Mouse smiles across the faded background. The woman who bought it lives in Alabama. The daughter she picked it for lives in Tennessee. The man in the Kenyan desert has never heard of these states, but he knows the place on his t-shirt is the happiest place on earth. He posts a picture of himself. He smiles and gives a thumbs up. Chilling at Disney, he writes. Africa pretends to be Epcot in the background. Here is a life he can make for himself. The woman who bought this shirt has never been to Africa. She went to Haiti once, a mission trip. There she saw a girl making pies of government dirt, sugar, water, something else, thousands of pies. She saw the people buy and eat the dirt. The girl took the money the woman gave her. The woman threw the pies in the hotel trash. A woman drives down a boulevard in Alabama. She is headed for goodwill. Her SUV is crammed with bags, crammed with discarded t-shirts. The joy of giving wells up in her heart like the pride a man who is not Kenyan feels. So many likes and loves for his made-up vacation in America. (laughs) 
Yes. Snap, 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 <laughs> snap, snap, snap. So great. So, so, so great. So many things I want to, I want to, you know, dive into here. So I guess I'll just start kind of based on what you were just saying, I'm assuming yeah. maybe that, that um, is my, it may be what, it, what inspired this piece or am, am I wrong or just tell me, how did you get to this piece? So, um, you know, I'm an obsessive NPR listener and I was listening to an NPR story about um, this, these refugees mm -hmm. um, who had, um, were in this desert place and who had made a city it was a, a a city out of nothing, out of, you know, sort of thorn bushes and leftover. And, and, and they had created economies like people were selling, buying and selling things. And relief workers were coming in to bring food uh, and people were trading the, the food for different things that they needed. And it made me think about um, world economics. And I was teaching a advanced composition class. And one of the essays we read was about what happens to all the stuff we donate to like Goodwill, mm -hmm. you know, the T-shirts and the Salvation Army and this and the other. And one of the arguments that the um, article made was that a lot of these get graded into different clothing piles, A pile, B pile, C pile, okay. based on how good they are. And the APAL goes to, I think it was Asia. And then the sort of leftover PAL goes to places in Africa. But what people don't think about is it has decimated a lot of local economies where people actually are sewing clothes, making traditional garb, um, because it's so much cheaper to buy these clothes that merchants can buy for a penny, for pounds mm -hmm. or a penny, mm -hmm. and then they sell them to local customers. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking about how things that we do, we do for um, with good intentions. Like we donate clothes because mm -hmm. we think that someone who needs clothes will be able to get clothes cheaply or for free. Um, but we don't think about the fact that sometimes those donations are decimating other economies and other places in the world. Mm -hmm. We think about um, um, how people um, think about America as a kind of Disneyland, yeah, sure. a kind of a place, you know, and De Disneyland is uh, often for me a trope for America. It's mm -hmm. the happiest place on earth, but everything is fake, <laughs> yep. you know? <laughs> and so I started thinking about that. And then my daughter told me a story about, um, you know, people making these pies out of dirt in Haiti. And I thought, oh, my God. So I began to sort of put all of those stories together and thinking mm -hmm. about how every little thing we do affects somebody else. Mm -hmm. And sometimes not in the ways we intend, mm -hmm. you know, um, and how complicated it is, how interesting it is, but also how sad. Sure. And so um, I wanted to think about how we are all connected, even though we don't know each other. And every action, um, intentional and unin often unintentional, um, has an effect on mm -hmm. somebody else's life. Um, and shouldn't that make us think? Shouldn't that make us think more carefully about the choices we make, um, even our good intentions? Sure. Wow. So there are so many things I'm making connections to. I'm just going to go ahead and spit these out. 
and then yes. jump back into the conversation. So are you familiar with Sweet Honey and the Rock by any chance? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So you, they did a um, song back in the 80s called Are My Hands Clean? And it, mm. talks, it literally tra- traces how um, cotton that's picked in America is taken to Nicaragua and then they get into like the con- the Contras down there and how like everything is wow. like, connected and how it comes back here to Cargill and everything is made here and manufactured and it goes back and forth all over the world and then it comes to our stores and they end the song with like, you know, then I get my, my blouse from Sears or somebody and it's like a fraction of the cost but all the right. equity, the sweat and the blood and all the other good stuff that's gone into producing these right. uh, these garments it's it's much heavier than what we end up paying for in the in the pa- in, in, in the in the right. so that's what i picked up from this piece it reminded me of that song yeah yeah for sure and uh, so the and the other thing is another one um my favorite yeah. one of my favorite books is called um cloud atlas by david mitchell and when, yeah in the the the, the you know the one of the feet the figures in that book is called is called Somni and they, she's like you know kind of like a religious figure and she says our lives are not our own from womb to tomb we are bound to others past and present and by each crime and every kindness we birth our future so yes, yes. That, that's what that that's what I got out of world economics oh, so now I'm going to start I'm going to add world economics to my list of that for that scene <laughs> of conversation and it's so real and it's so like and i love how you tied it in too because something that's so palpable in, in terms of like us just donating <laughs> donating yes. clothes yes. and and mission trips because we you know us yes. westerners or oh, us southerners or americans we love to think that we're just doing you know the lord's we love work. our mission we love <laughs> our mission trips right. we're doing god's work Yes. And there's nothing wrong with it per se. But we have to be mindful of how like the what what the actual impact is when we go there. Go these places. And so I love how you the imagery that you I love how you wrote it essentially. Like you made these connections. It was just very, very beautiful. Some of my favorite parts um were you how you likened the phone minutes to other like tangible needs like you know phone yes. Yes. i haven't even thought about minutes you know first of yes, all you know, know. We, have, we have a cell phone plan these days yes and yes we have a cell phone plan and then we have food that we typically don't have to worry about but there's like you 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 painted so beautifully like how those minutes become oh, a sacrifice you. for other things and so yeah. um i'm just I was gagged. <laughs> I was just like, oh my goodness. It's so incredible. So, I mean, uh, let me look at back at my notes. Is there any other, uh, any other points that you want to pull out from there? Um, no, the, you know, just for me, um, it's that we, because um, one of the things that I sort of keep coming back to in my work is how we just go on, you know, mm-hmm. we go blithely along doing things and just blissfully unaware Mm -hmm. of um, everything, including the suffering of other people. Mm -hmm. And we would, and, and, and so I'm always fascinated, not by people, not by crazy people who intentionally inflict suffering on others, but by quote unquote, good people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I count myself as a good person, but how um, unintentional am I? You know, mm-hmm. because nobody can walk around 
24-7, totally aware of the impact of everything they do. Sure. But every single thing we do has an impact on somebody else. And it's not always good. And, you know, it's just like what you were saying is you haven't thought about minutes. But there's some people who are constantly thinking about minutes. Am I, mm-hmm. you know, am I going to have enough? We sort of take so many things for granted because we are able to take so many things for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing, too, in, in addition to that, us taking things for granted is also the projection. I, I, I flipped open this beautiful book. Yeah. I got back to the, what you were talking about. But you, the point where you point, you say he posts a picture of himself. So we let that that's invoking the spirit yeah. of social media, which is a hot mess from the root to the tutor, right? Like, <laughs> it's, a, it's just like the way that we communicate these things. And so, like, I mean, yeah. in his action, like in his action, you know, like it's it's curious, like, you know, he's doing this thing and how he's projecting this this experience that he his pretend vacation, you know, and how often do we all do that with the same thing yeah. with us going to say Kenya for a mission trip and we're taking pictures with the people there, like, you know, like it it's very logical and it reflects everything. This is very like balanced poem, the whole experience. This is great. So, yeah. so thank you for um bringing those out. Um it was a great experience. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, is there anything that you, in particular that you want people, other than what you've already shared, is there anything in particular that you want people to take away from this poem? Um, just the just the idea that um, um, everything we do affects someone who you may never know, never, never meet, sure. um, in places you may never go. Sure. Um, and so... Uh, I'm I'm a big believer in gratitude mm-hmm. that and I'm also a big believer that we are never grateful enough for all the things that we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that um we live in a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. You live in a delicate balance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's a gut check for me because uh I definitely am one to <laughs> <laughs> just, you get so caught up in life and everything, you know, like you oh, said, yeah. walking through very, oh, we all well, are. you know, just 24 seven, unaware of things, but uh, things aren't as bad as they could be. You know, it's, I, no, I thank you for reminding me to be, to be grateful yeah. and to express that gratitude. Um, so yeah, again, world economics, that was again, a great little treat. I, 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 so full disclosure, y'all, I had to, we had settled on two poems and I actually, pulled a fast one and, and switched to that one at the last minute because it was just again there were so many poems I wanted to discuss and we're gonna I'm also gonna sneak another one in here in a second but um I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of the race and course yeah because that was sure. really really great um and it's how do I want to add so like I love, I, I'm a firm believer in race plays a part in literally everything we do. So that, that term, that class, that's the name of a class, race and is so apt. And you do open up a space and allow folks to kind of explore all those different, um, those possibilities. I'm curious yeah. though, and, and we can feel free to, you know, side swipe this question or not, but like we're living in a time where like, these kinds of conversations are becoming incredibly more like police in that yes. sort of thing. Yes. So yes. what is your reaction to that? Especially, I mean, let's keep it real. Alabama wow. is, if not like <laughs> the worst of the worst, I suppose. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's subjective, I suppose. But like, 
what is that like to be teaching that course and like what kind of conversations are you guys having in that classroom in this time? Well, that's another advantage of teaching at an HBCU. It's it's a slightly different conversation. Sure. Um, but I have taught these kinds of things at uh, a PWI. Mm-hmm. And um, people can feel people. Uh, I have never had a student. Um, my experience has not been that students feel uncomfortable talking about race. What students feel talking about race has been curious. Okay. Um, curious. And um, I do not, for me, the classroom is a sacred space. Sure. So it is not a space to lambast people or confuse or, or accuse people or make people feel bad. It's a space to open up dialectics that mm-hmm. we engage in dialectics to arrive at a truth, whatever that happens to be. And we use um, one of the things I like to teach is we use credible sources. You know, mm-hmm. and I tell mm-hmm. my students up front, you don't have to agree with me. As a matter of fact, my favorite moment in a class is when a student disagrees with you. Sure. <laughs> Be- because that means I have done my job. That mm-hmm. means you are thinking for yourself. So mm-hmm. I don't believe in um, any kind of indoctrination. Sure. And my, I encourage students to look things up. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to, when you argue with me, you better bring the facts I know. <laughs> because I'm going to know my facts. Yeah. So, you know, and so because that's about teaching it. And I think what what I think is um, and I've been um, I, I just wrote a poem not too long ago called critical period race period theory period. OK. OK. And um, I, I have a um, Robert White is a colleague of mine and we have a radio show and we talk about we started talking about critical race theory when the first controversy came out. And we just mm-hmm. talk about it all the time. OK, um, because um, you, you know, knowledge is powerful and knowledge cannot be silenced. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's our responsibility to keep talking about it. Now, I'm from a very interesting position because I am a tenured full professor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, who is nearing retirement. So um, there's not a lot of leverage against me. But sure. I understand how young faculty members may feel a bit squeamish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the universities are briefing people on what they can say and they can't say. But in an academic space, I don't know how you're going to police facts. I mean, I just think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, history, uh, how are you going to impugn uh, John Hope Franklin, who spent Hmm. a decade creating, you know, From Slavery to Freedom, and that's a book that has been vetted and Mm fact-checked. Like, this is just what it is. Right. Like, what else are you going to say? Number two, this idea that um, a college classroom is a place where everybody's going to feel comfortable all the time Mm -hmm. is ridiculous (laughs) because learning is uncomfortable. You don't have to talk about race. You can talk about anything. Learning is uncomfortable. When um, I was at Huntington, um, I used to have students who would come up to me because students had to take 12 hours of religion. But the religion they they took was theology. It was not Sunday school. And so (laughs) I had students coming up to me, a lot of them who came from very, you know, small rural towns Mm. um, would come up to me and say, 
are those religious religion professors atheists? And I would say, no, but <laughs> it doesn't matter if they are because they're they're talking about theology. They're not talking about Sunday school or your belief system. They yeah. are talking about things like how the Bible was created historically. They're talking about, you know, biblical scholars. They're talking about biblical history from a historical point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I teach American literature. So when I would teach things like um, uh, America was a pluralistic society from the beginning because there were people of color here already, people mm-hmm. of color who came and blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And when we start talking about things like Pocahontas and I said, well, let's read the account in John Smith and they read it and it has absolutely nothing to do with what they know of the story. And they were like, you ruined it for us forever, <laughs> Dr. Trumbull. And I said, I didn't ruin it. This is what it says. Literally, right. John Smith has written it down for you. And so knowledge is always going to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't care what it's about. Hmm. And. But you should be armed with knowledge because yeah. what is the, you know, my, uh, the, I, I don't quite understand this anti-woke um, uh, thing because what is the opposite of woke? Ignorance? Sure. So this is what we want? Yeah. Ignorance or, you know, just stupidity or yeah. like what? I don't understand that. And I yeah. don't understand how you're going to be able to um, uh, police that. As long as there are libraries and books, which I know people are trying to get rid of, or mm-hmm. you know, the internet is out of hand. You can't produce. You can't uh, produce that. You can't uh, police that. And so, I just don't think it's sustainable. Sure. Fascism in history tells us fascism is never sustainable. You cannot keep the knowledge from the people. I don't care what you do. And all you do when you ban books is drive people to bookstores. You might as well not ban them because now everybody wants to know what's in that book that you don't want me to read. So now I've got to read it. So um, my feeling about it is that these things, and if we, I mean, it's not the first time it's happened. It won't be the last, I don't think. These things, if we look at history, are never sustainable. Mm-hmm. The Inquisition, you know, everybody wants to say what you believe and what the knowledge is. I don't care what it is. They're not sustainable. It's sure. just not. It's not. It, 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 it's it's like, a, you know, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So sure. you cannot keep the knowledge from the people. Yeah. That's a good spot to take a break. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of season three of the Higher Ground Society podcast. You've been listening to this year's National Poetry Month conversation with Dr. Jacqueline Allen Trimble, poet and chair of languages and literature at Alabama State University. I hope you've enjoyed the chat this far. Tune in later this week for part two. The music featured in this episode was created by Birmingham music producer Jasmine Garfield of Art Intel Media. This episode also features the song Zalei by Yosufa Sidibe. Thanks again to the Alabama Humanities Alliance for their support of the Higher Ground Society podcast. Be sure to check out the great work that they're doing across the state at alabamahumanities.org.
lastly, thank you, listener, for listening in with us on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to be notified for future episodes of the show. We've got a lot in store for you this season, so you don't want to miss it. Until next time, be easy. Thank you.